The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Charlotte Green is people! No, I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with another Slate spoiler special podcast. This week I'm excited about the spoiler because we have some real expertise on the topic, and the topic is a complicated one. It is the actor Nick Cage. We're going to be talking about The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, the new Nick Cage movie in which Nick Cage plays himself in various multiple versions, and uh, it's a kind of a buddy comedy action thriller. But most of all, I would say it is a meditation on the career of this unique actor. And here to talk about Nick Cage is Keith Phipps, who is a film critic, the co-editor of the newsletter The Reveal, and a writer for Here and There. Can you name some of the places you've been publishing lately, Keith? Oh, sure. You can read me a lot at GQ, The, the Ringer, TV Guide, and Vulture. Those are my, my main places. But, you know, I'm elsewhere, too. But most of all, you're here right now because you're the author of a new book called Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career. And as we were discussing a moment ago before the mics were on, this couldn't be better timed, the release of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, given that it's a film all about the self-reflexivity of Nick Cage. And this is part of, or a large part, I think, of what your book is trying to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I've kind of eyed the film a little bit warily, too, because because like, you know, what if we come to different conclusions? What if they have a totally different take? And what if it's bad? So, but, you know, we'll get into that. I, I you know, I'll tip my hand. I, I enjoyed the film. Uh, so that was a, a relief actually watching it a couple weeks ago at the Wisconsin Film Festival. That was actually the first thing I was going to ask, because since this is a spoiler special, the very first thing I like to ask is good or bad. Like, I don't want to make people wait for that delivery of that verdict, because then we can really get into the weeds on the movie itself. So you did like Massive Talent. I did. I was maybe a little disappointed by this movie, even though I enjoyed large stretches of it. And that's just simply because it's such a rich idea to have Nick Cage play himself. It's something, as we'll talk about, that he's already done throughout his career and is maybe in a way always doing. And I feel like the conceptual richness of this movie's premise was never quite fully explored. But we'll get into all that. I think what you're saying is totally fair, because I think there's a ceiling on this film's ambition and that ceiling could have been a lot higher that it is. I almost feel like in some ways, the buddy comedy-ness of it takes over the meta elements of it. Because I, I find Cage and co-star Pedro Pascal are just super fun together. I would like to see them in another movie, perhaps without this uh, meta trapping. I did find the commentary pretty amusing as well. And, and it goes a little deeper in references and a little deeper thematically than I might have expected too. Well, let's get into the premise first so we can we can set up exactly what we mean when we say this is a, a Nick Cage on Nick Cage movie in a different way than Adaptation, which is, of course, the first movie that comes to mind, in a different way than Adaptation, the Spike Jones film, which is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Nick Cage playing a double role. This casts him as a sort of older and younger version of himself, among other sort of myriad avatars of Nick Cage that appears. Do you want to just give us the basic premise and set up the movie? The Nicolas Cage of the film maps on to the real Nicolas Cage in, you know, I'd say there's 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 a heavy overlap there, but certainly not 100% overlap. But he's a, he's a struggling actor who's kind of at a downturn in his career, a little desperate to get a role that will 
put him back on the A list to the degree that he, you know, he, the film opens with a the fair well after a, after a short intro setting up the plot. Elsewhere, it opens with him pleading for an unnamed director played by by David Gordon Green uh, for a part, you know, big part in his new film. Uh, he's somewhat estranged from his ex-wife and distant from his teenage daughter. Uh, he lives at what they don't call it the Chateau Marmont, but basically is the Chateau Marmont. He's, he's overspent and overextended and uh, unhappy with the direction of his career to the point where he's occasionally haunted by visions of his younger, wilder self who is disappointed in the way that uh, he's turned out and wants him to return to his, his you know, his sort of uh, wilder roots, like care, you know, more more carefree roots uh, and, and take chances both in his, his personal life in his career. Can I take a little time out before we, we get to the, the sort of main meat of the, the plot of the movie to ask about the younger Nick Cage, Nicky Cage, as he appears in this movie? Um, can you talk about what he looks like and just the scenes where he confronts his younger self? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, it's definitely a circa 1990 Nicolas Cage, not even circa 1990. It's a very specific reference that I have to imagine was Cage's own addition to the plot, or to the, to the script, rather. Uh, it's Has he appeared on the talk show Wogan, which is a which was a um, much watched British talk show at, at the time, and if you watch this clip, if you, if you go to YouTube and just look Nicholas Cage Wogan W O G A N, it is a about a five minute clip of either someone losing their mind on television or putting on a very smart piece of performance art or maybe both at the same time i'm not sure he comes out in a leather jacket does karate kicks uh you know yells screams at the audience in, in enthusiasm at one point he takes his shirt off doesn't he throw playing cards at the audience or, or is it cash that he's throwing uh, it's cash i believe it's been a while since i watched the clip but yeah it, it is just obviously an attention getting uh, appearance whatever the motivation or whatever the amount of performance in, involved in it but that's that is the guy it makes sense that that particular moment on the cage timeline at his most like sort of you know unhinged and and happy to be you know a, 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 the joker in the deck of, of hollywood uh would be the one who's who's haunting this older cage who is a professional who takes acting very seriously and wants to just kind of work. And that, in some ways, at least maps on pretty directly onto the cage as he presents himself in interviews. I cannot claim any insights into who Nicolas Cage is, what he actually thinks, but that's certainly the cage you meet in profiles later in his career. You mean somebody who is torn between kind of action blockbuster roles and and more personal roles? No, someone someone who is so who's rarely into acting, who just likes to keep working and wants to do interesting interesting work and is less wrapped up in the idea as as he had early in his career of being a rebellious kind of punk figure in Hollywood. I mean, but there's something about the cage as seen in this movie, which is spelled, by the way, with a K, Nick with a K, to differentiate him from his real life NIC self, that seems like it, it throws back to an earlier decade of cage. And I wonder, as somebody who's just literally written the book on it, what you think of this. I mean, this image of him as kind of a burnout who can't find his place in Hollywood seems like something you would have said about the Nick Cage of the Sorcerer's Apprentice years, you know, from 2010 to, I don't know, the late teens or so. Whereas I feel like right now, 
I mean, he just made this movie Pig that's really this very unusual choice and he's kind of riding high. I mean, this is not a, an accuracy quibble exactly. I'm just I'm just wondering where this movie is trying to locate the ever-shifting figure of this particular celebrity. Yeah, I think it, it really speaks to the cage of, I mean, Pig is kind of, but feels like the beginning of a comeback. And in some ways, this almost feels like it could be the end of a particular chapter where he was kind of lost in the VOD red box wilderness. Because I watched all those movies he made in the teens. <laughs> there are, uh, you know, it's one after the other. He's so prolific, right? The guy has made over 100 movies at this point in his life. And they're heavily, you know, the, the, the output has only ramped up over the years. I mean, he spent a lot of the teens doing these, you know, lower budget films that did not make it to theaters very often. And a lot of them are honestly more interesting and ambitious than you might think. Some of them are not. But there's work with some promising directors and work with, you know, Paul Schrader in a couple of films here. And, you know, I think insofar as he had, you know, I think the choices he made are he went for the most interesting projects he could during this time. But there were there's a lot of just sort of drifting from film to film because it's it's a job. And I think that, you know, that's the Nicolas Cage we kind of meet here, um, or at least an impression of that Nicolas Cage, as, as imagined by the screenwriters, more than the Cage of, of the last, let's just say, year. Because I, I think I think Pig was a, a film that kind of reminded people that this was you know, an actor of massive talent, to borrow the phrase from the title. It seems to me like it's been a really long time since Nick Cage gave a rat's ass what anyone thinks of his career or his choices, you know, and sometimes that has served him well, and sometimes it served him ill. But the the actor in this movie, the the fictional Nick Cage, seems like someone who's a little more caught up with concern with his reputation. He's also deep in debt, which I think Cage is not anymore, but famously has been in the past. So, I mean, in an interesting way, it's sort of mining a low point of the real life Nick Cage's career and personal life in order to create a conflict for this fictional Nick Cage. Right. It's sort of like uh, the public perception of, of who Nicolas Cage might be. But also, I think it, it's respectful in a way that you can kind of reclaim and reclaim some dignity about that public from that public perception of him. I, you know, I, he turned down the role several times, but I think, you know, I can see why he, he actually took it in the end because it is as as self deprecating as 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 he is in it, and as as many um, you know sort of little jabs it takes at the. Uh, somewhat, you know, the downturn in fortunes that he's experienced, it is really respectful of him. And to circle back, presents him as someone who takes acting seriously, which is something that is runs throughout Cage's career. I mean, if you watch his acceptance speech for the Oscars for Leaving Las Vegas, it's really simple and heartfelt. So it's like, you know, I know it's not cool, but I just really love acting. And I, I do think that is at heart, something, you know, there's something really true about that when it comes comes to Cage himself. Yeah, I mean, I guess here's where I could get a little bit into my critique of this movie, which has much more to do with it not going far enough and deep enough than with anything it does do. It's it's, it's quite a fun romp, if, if a little bit shaggy toward the end. But the fact that, as you're saying, it's it's kind of mining, it's mining this side of Nick Cage that is almost, you know, we, we think of him as somebody who's an ironic actor or a camp actor because he appears in so many over-the-top roles. But this part of him that's very sincere and very um, hardworking, you know, and has a really strong work ethic as an actor. 
I feel like this movie leaves out some of the deepest wells of his neurosis and the things that really make him that the, the interesting figure, both public figure and on-screen figure that he is. And that includes some stuff that you get into early in your book about his troubled relation to the Coppola family, which he is a member of, right? He's a nephew of Francis Ford Coppola and his father, Coppola's older brother, you know, was a hugely important figure in Coppola's life. And, you know, he has, I think, a lot of, or at least at the beginning of his career, it seems, had a, a lot of hesitancy about being identified as a Coppola, even though he worked several times for his his uncle directing him. And none of that gets folded into the movie. I mean, it's all, I feel like this movie doesn't quite have the courage of its convictions, and maybe that was too painful for him to explore, or he didn't want that in the script. And obviously, it shouldn't be built only around, you know, those nepotism charges early in his career or anything like that. But I just feel like there's so much more to Nicolas Cage that in his multiverse, right? I mean, to, to use the, the terms of from another movie he appeared in, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. In the multiverse of Nick Cage, there's so much more than is is dreamt of in the philosophy of this movie. And that I found frustrating. That's why you, you watch this movie, you have a laugh, you, you roll into the nearest bookstore, you buy my book, and you get to explore the rest of it. No, I know what you mean, though. I, I do think there's some of that in the Nicky Cage character, though, where, you know, this is someone who... You know, I, I, I cover this in the book, but like you know, he was really uncomfortable with Moonstruck, you know, being a big hit and making him a heartthrob. The film he makes right after that is, is Vampire's Kiss, which is a, you know, a, a low budget horror film, dark comedy, which which contains some of his grandest gestures as a young actor, uh, including uh, infamously, it's a spoiler special, so no one will, you know, will spoil that movie a little bit, eating a cockroach on, on camera. Which was his own kind of improv insistence, right, on doing that. Right, yeah, and there was, it was two takes, too, so boy. Uh, but um, but there's a Los Angeles Times profile of, of him as, you know, at the height of Moonstruck's you know, popularity in early 1988 because it was kind of a slow-burning hit. You know, it came out in the end of, of 87. The expectations for it weren't necessarily that high, and it just kept playing and playing and finding a, a bigger and bigger audience and making him more of a, of, a, of a Hollywood star than he'd ever been before, despite being well-known uh, up to a certain level. And so the, the profile of him in the Los Angeles Times is the, the top of the page is him looking very dreamy, floppy-haired, kind of a little tortured, you know, and the, the bottom image is him eating a cockroach. So you know, there, this is someone who is really kind of torn between, you know, working in Hollywood and this idea of himself as a rebellious, I'll-try-anything punk actor. So I think, you know, some of those neuroses, you know, while they're not given very specific you know, gone into in specific detail, I think they're kind of folded into that Nikki character. So to get back to the unbearable weight of massive talent for a minute, let us talk about Javi, the character played by Pedro Pascal, who I think is every bit as important in making what works about this movie work as as Nick Cage is, honestly. And I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a hard guy to play up against, especially when he's playing all these versions of himself. But Pedro Pascal nearly steals the movie from him. It's, it's a wonderful character. And I wonder if you could talk about fandom, Nick Cage super fandom, as expressed through the character of Javi Gutierrez. Yeah, Javi Gutierrez is a, a character who who's uh, a person whose vast, if sort of vaguely acquired wealth, uh, allows him to pursue a super fandom of Nicolas Cage to the point where he has, a, at one point, is, is discovered like a shrine that includes things like a, a, a mannequin of Cage holding the, the guns from Face Off and, and other bits of Cage arcana. And it's just such a, it could be such a creepy idea, but Pascal plays him as just so sweet and sincere and you know, wholehearted in his appreciation 
of Cage's career that it becomes a totally different dynamic uh, at all. I mean, I mean, Cage within the film is disarmed by his you know warmth and honesty, and I think we are too watching it. So it becomes what could be a fairly unsettling story of obsession becomes a really sweet story of of two men bonding and be, and becoming friends. You know, at a point where you know, and I think. You know, other films have tackled this as well, but I think you know, at a certain point in your, your in your adulthood, it becomes hard to make new friends, and and this becomes a story about that in some ways. Yeah, those are my favorite scenes by far of the movie. Are the scenes in the first third or so? I would say when they go from when these two men go from you know being in this odd sort of standoff where I mean, Nick Cage, fictional Nick Cage, just assumes that this guy has does have an unhealthy obsession with him and is a creep, and that you know he's just doing a cynical cash grab job of attending this birthday party in Mallorca at a fabulous house. And then in a couple of scenes, one a drunken scene on, I think, their first night together, and then later on a scene where they're (laughs) tripping on acid while unwisely driving on a a narrow road on the side of a mountain, that you see them really discovering each other. And as you say, you know, bonding and becoming close friends. And those moments are, are so sweet and endearing. And the things that they bond over as well, many of which I think are drawn from Nick Cage's own life, are extremely endearing. For example, their shared love of the German expressionist film, The Cabin of Dr. Caligari. Yeah, apparently there is a deleted scene that is either part of the acid trip or some other part that is pays direct homage to Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which I hope surfaces in some way. But yeah, Cage has been talking about German Expressionism as an early influence from the first interviews he's given. I mean, it was something his, you know, sounds like his father basically gave him a crash course on classic world cinema at at perhaps a too young age, but things like uh, Caligari and Nosferatu made a deep impression on him. And you can see it in his acting quite a bit. I mean, it is, uh, I think he's really one of the few actors of his generation to draw that heavily from expressionism. Uh, so it's a neat thing for them to bond over. That, that and, and, you know, being exposed to the wonders of Paddington 2 by Javi's uh, appreciation of that and, and uh, coming to recognize that as, as a great movie it is. That, that to me is a, a really nice moment as well. Oh, yeah. Them watching Paddington 2 together is absolutely fantastic. And as long as we're spoiling, it's also very sweet that that ends the movie, right? Because there's this frame story about... Nicolas Cage's real-life family, or rather his fictional character's family, played by Sharon Horgan as his ex-wife and Lily Sheen as his daughter, uh, who are annoyed by his, you know, constant attempts to get them to watch German expressionist movies and, you know, bring them into his world. And he's seen at the beginning as this real narcissist, right, in relation to his daughter. But then in the final scene, she manages to get him to bond with her over Paddington too. So you also see that the Javi character has given something, right, has given some sort of enrichment to the life of, of the Nick Cage character. Right, and it's kind of the sense that, they, that this is a friendship that will continue as well and kind of reinvigorated him creatively in, in some uh, some fun ways too. I also couldn't resist the scene in which they tour, in which the two men tour the collection of Nick Cage memorabilia at Javi's mansion, which again, without, you know, without the right writing and, and acting for that scene could have been a very creepy moment, but instead it plays with precisely that, that kind of creepiness and makes it somewhat endearing. I especially love when Nick Cage offers to buy the wax sculpture of 
of himself. What movie is that from where he's holding the two gold guns? Oh, of course, of course. Castor Troy. Right. But I just I love the poorly made nature of that that bad statue. It's not exactly Madame Tussauds worthy. Yeah. And I uh, (laughs) the scene hit a little close because like I was looking around. I was like, wait, I think I have some of those magazines. I think I bought those off eBay as part of my research. Like, wait, am I happy? That didn't even occur to me. Of course, he has a double. His double is you. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose so. Let's talk a little bit about what I consider the weakest part of the movie, which is this action thriller plot that kind of takes over for the last almost half of the movie. I mean, I really felt like this movie started to lose it toward the end. And it was largely because those scenes just felt thrown together in order to provide some kind of conflict. So there's this idea that the entire time that Nick Cage is visiting this mansion, these two are under tight CIA surveillance from this team uh, made up of two agents played by Tiffany Haddish and Ike Barinholtz, who are mostly seen off-site just kind of watching over security cameras as the action unfolds at the mansion. I found this a really weak subplot and uh, the idea that, you know, they thought Javi was some sort of criminal mastermind. I mean, we know from the beginning that he can't be. He's just too sweet as played by Pedro Pascal. It would be too cruel of a rug pull to the audience. So sure enough, it turns out that, you know, it's actually one of his associates who is this terrible international criminal mastermind who's kidnapped the daughter of, what is it, the president of Catalonia? Does it matter (laughs) i believe so but yes uh, but but does it matter i mean i guess i was talking about this with my co-hosts of the slate culture gab fest this week because this is one of our topics on our show and both of them pretty much unreservedly loved the movie and thought that i was being a crank and a priss because i wanted this i want i just wanted more from it i just felt like it promised us so much it gave us so much in that friendship and those two performances and it was just kind of weak that it felt like it had a a really slapped on sort of screenwriting 101 action plot tacked on it does kind of lampshade it. It's, it's the closest it comes to, you know, sometimes I think it plays like adaptation light in some ways, but I think it's closest it comes to paying direct homage to adaptation by, by talking about the third act. Although the third act is different uh, in, in regards to the screenplay they're, they're concocting and then shifting into action mode. I did love seeing Cage in makeup. <laughs> and disguise and getting to do like this this you know character you know going undercover uh, uh, as 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 another character which was you know not particularly convincing makeup and a really big performance I mean you forget sometimes just how funny he can he can be and I think this movie is a nice reminder of that I, I felt like the weakest scene in the movie was the one where where he's kind of being directed to investigate you know and, and keeps you know excellently drugging himself or whatever it's fine whatever but I, I like Haddish I like Barinholtz in general I feel like they're a little wasted in this movie and they both kind of disappear I mean I think Barinholtz's character dies and Haddish's character's fate is ambiguous but we don't get anything wrapping that up either and like for as important as important they are and, and driving the, the plot that feels a little neglected in, in the end. Yeah, exactly. It's not me criticizing their performances, but they don't really have characters to explore. And yeah, very confusing what happens to her at the end, to the extent that I thought maybe I had missed it. Like, did I look down at my notes and not see what the fate of Tiffany Haddish's character was? It feels like a scene missing kind of moment. Let's stop our conversation about the unbearable weight of massive talent for just a minute for a word from our sponsor. All right, Keith, back to our conversation. So I feel like we've talked our way through enough of the storyline now that we can get into the bigger questions or lack of bigger questions. Just sort of what does this movie leave you with as somebody who has just gone on, you know, I assume multiple year long journey through the 103 films of Nicolas Cage? I mean, one thing that struck me 
is that we're not done assessing his career. You know, there are so many lists out right now because of this movie of, you know, the 40 greatest Nick Cage performances and the 10 most iconic, you know, Nick Cage moments and things like that. And they're all really fun to read and pursue, as is your book, but it's all a work in progress, right? I mean, he's 58 years old, but he is nowhere near slowing down. And it seems like he's got a lot more stuff on his plate still for the future. So where are we in the midst of Nick Cage's career and our response to it? I'm just really interested in seeing what happens next. I mean, it, it's it's it'll be outside the scope of my book, uh, unless you know, 40 years from now, I write another one, I guess. But but I I think he's nicely positioned to kind of re-enter the world of of interesting work that people pay attention to. You know, we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, he's doing his first proper Hollywood film right now, Renfield, in which he plays Dracula, which which I'm very curious about. But I think there's a you know a few more independent films on the way that look pretty intriguing. But I mean, you know, you think about what's next for him. I don't know. You know, I, I you know I, I think at the beginning of every decade of his career, it would have been impossible to predict what was going to come next. And there are so many kind of sliding doors moments in his career when when if he'd done say dumb and dumber with jim carrey which was certainly a possibility that you know puts it in a whole different direction superman lives if that had happened pushes him in a whole other direction but i i hope it's you know i hope what's next is good though because i i really do think that you know the, the one-two punch of pig and umbra way to mess of talent kind of you know serves as a, as a reminder that p- those who have not been paying obsessive attention over the last couple of years that he's a, a really dynamic performer with a lot of range that and, and brings something to a, to a movie that not really anyone else can since you mentioned superman lives which is a, a project he was connected to that never came into being i'm curious and and it- Correct me if I'm wrong, but has he? He's never played a superhero or a supervillain. Am I correct? I mean, for a comic book collector whose son is named Cal El, the original name of Superman from his home planet, I just I, I'm rather baffled that he hasn't been offered, or maybe he's constantly turning down. You know, those kind of Marvel DC roles that every actor of his stature seems to have taken at some point. How are you forgetting Ghost Rider, Dana? <laughs> the flaming <laughs> motorcycle skull superhero of our dreams. I don't, I don't really care for either of those movies too much, but I think it was it's not a bad superhero character for him to have taken on, and he's got some interesting interpretations of it, but I don't think those films are particularly interesting. And they kind of arrive at a weird moment in superhero movies where past that first wave of excitement with the Spider-Man movies... Uh, and the X-Men movies, and we're before, a year before Iron Man, when that comes out, when when the MCU kind of kicks things into a, a new phase, it's just kind of, you know, like there's a little bit of fatigue had it already set in when he when he played Ghost Rider. And plus the film, I don't think, is, is great. What's funny, though, is I, I went to my daughter's fifth grade class to talk, to, you know, the, the teacher asked me to come in and talk about what it is to, to put out a book, and... I asked what Nicolas Cage films they knew, and Ghost Rider was the one they knew most. So I feel like there's a lot of, there's a generation of kids just lapping up every single possible Marvel offshoot. So, you know, to them, he is Ghost Rider, and to a lesser extent, Greg Crude. There are two, he did actually play Superman uh, very briefly in the Teen Titans Go to the Movies film, which was, which is a lot of fun. 
uh, in general. And he, of course, he's in, he's in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. But in terms of live action, Ghost Rider is his, uh, is, and in its sequel are, are the only times he's he's done that. Do you know whether he's been offered a lot of those roles and turned them down? Because it seems like for a super villain, I mean, or a Bond villain, it just seems like he would be top of the list for those kinds of roles. Yeah, I don't know. And also, I should mention Kick-Ass, which, he plays, which is kind of a, um, you know, Adam West Batman homage and, and an attitudinal superhero dark comedy. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. He doesn't take on a lot of, you know, he well, likes to be the star of the film. And, you know, villains are rarely the star of the film. And so I, I don't know specifically if he's turned anything down, but I can't imagine, I kind of have to imagine he's chosen, you know, he would choose to enter that world very carefully, if, if at all. Okay, Keith, I think we maybe are done with this slight, but I think at worst pleasant and at best, you know, rollicking um, adventure, the unbearable weight of massive talent. It speaks a lot to the weirdness of Nick Cage's career that this extremely weird premise is far from the strangest thing he's ever done. And uh, I wonder, and I was thinking about this in reading your book too, if you would have any uh, particular recommendations of lesser known Cage movies. I mean, we all have these iconic images of, you know, the Con Airs and Face Offs and Wild at Hearts and these these huge roles that he's played in our minds. But he's been in so many odd choices and, you know, things that people might not have heard about. Can you name two or three from the past, weirdy but goody kind of Nick Cage roles? And then also looking forward to the future, besides Renfield, which we talked about, you know, a more mainstream, big budget movie, some weird stuff that might be coming up in the future. Sure. I mean, when I had a chance to screen a couple of Cage movies, at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago when my book came out. The first one that came to mind, this thing I'd want to see on the big screen and, and play to a crowd, was uh, Matchstick Men, which is the Ridley Scott film he did in 2003 that kind of fell through the cracks at the time. I mean, it wasn't like a huge flop or anything, but it also wasn't a huge hit. Uh, and I don't, I hope, I think it's been a little bit rediscovered since then, but it, it's this, this neat, he co-stars opposite Sam Rockwell and Alison Lohman. He plays, Cage plays a con artist, not con man, he's very specific about that, his character is, who has some sort of combination of OCD and Tourette's uh, that he, he struggles against uh, in, in his work. And, you know, I think it's a really good performance in that he starts with the humanity of this person and then adds on the mannerisms, whereas I think a lot of actors might have just gone with the mannerisms first. It's got some neat twists in it, which was kind of fun to see with a crowd because not everyone knew what was coming. The Another one, you know, I think the 2000s, were kind of, I, some of my favorite Cage films come from the 2000s, but it's kind of like an undefined era for him. But I do, I really love the Werner Herzog film, Port, uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which I, I also, one, I think kind of fell through the cracks and was somewhat misrepresented by the trailers, which emphasize these really big expressionistic moments in his performance when there's actually a lot more in that film, which I, I find a really touching movie about, you know, whether or not, someone can come back from a lifetime of really awful behavior, what it takes to redeem that, you know, what it takes to, to stop, you know, to, to kind of turn your life around in addition to, you know, scenes of like ghost dancing, you know, breakdancing ghosts and, and other <laughs> big moments. Hallucinated lizards play a large Hallucinated role. lizards and, and yeah, and so on and so forth. It, it is a, a, a singular, uh, a singular film, but one I, I enjoy a lot. And and then I guess, you know, you have to have the stomach for it. Well, I have to have something for both of them, but, but I mean, the one that really, I mean, I have to point out Mandy, which was really one of the real sparks of inspiration for my book. You know, seeing that with a crowd and, and recognizing this is, an actor who was doing something new and interesting after watching him all these years, he could still surprise me. 
So yeah, that, that's definitely one I would recommend, uh, which is this really, you know, how do you, how do you describe it? it, it it's this really artistically bold revenge slash horror film, but grounded in these really deep emotions. I mean, it is, you know, it's a violent film in which he takes on a whole cult of, uh, you know, killer religious cult, but also uh, I find a really touching movie about loss and, and, and sadness. Not unlike Pig in a way, Mandy, right? I mean, with a, with a, a woman in the place of the pig, but it's it's the revenge thriller that is also about love and how, you know, his desire for this gory revenge springs from his great love. With a lot more axe fights than Pig. And then the one he made right before that is a, this, this darkly comic horror film called Mom and Dad. Did you ever see that one, Dana? No, definitely not. I don't even know if I've heard of it. It got some attention at the time, but it's directed by Brian Taylor, who's half of the Neville Dean and Taylor team behind Crank and the second Ghost Rider film. But it is a, the premise of the film is that Nicholas Cage and Selma Blair play parents who, with uh, with the community around them, suddenly find themselves fighting the un- uncontrollable urge to kill their children. And, you know, it's a wild, violent, you know, dark comic horror film. But in the middle of it, there's this flashback in which both characters, but especially Cage's, lay out all the discontents of middle age, all their frustrations with parenthood, things they all hate, they hate about getting older. And it is just really heartfelt, confessional moment in the middle of this, this what a very well done and you know, crazy violent comedy. Again, not for all tastes, but if it sounds appealing, check it out. Yeah, that sounds very much to Nick Cage's taste in that I, I feel like he likes to play the the sort of dark fantasy angle of a lot of his characters. Like, what is the worst thing you, you could imagine? That's the thing he's kind of going to enact for you on the big screen. All right, Keith, I'm going to take another moment out for a word from our other sponsor. And then I want to go out on your recommendations for weird Nicolas Cage movies to come. All right. So, Keith, before I let you go to promote your wonderful book out in the world, I know you've been talking about Nick Cage on every conceivable podcast, so I really appreciate you coming on mine. But I just wanted to get your recommendations for future Nick Cage movies to look out for that might go under people's radar, because as we've been saying, he does so many movies in so many genres that it's kind of hard to keep up with the smaller ones. Yeah, I have no idea how big a deal these films will be when they come out. And there's there's a few in the pipeline that, if nothing else, have some promising casting there's a film called called the retirement plan which i honestly don't know much about but which reunites with ron parlin his, his co-starred a not very good film called the season of the witch but you know i, I enjoy ron perlman he has a pair of westerns coming out called the old way and butcher's crossing which i'm curious about because you know westerns these, these would be his first and Bush's Crossing, especially, is based on an acclaimed novel that I've been t- I've been told by people who have read it is a great role for Nicolas Cage. So those are what I'm looking for. And of course, first Renfield, he plays Dracula. Come on, who doesn't want to see Nicolas Cage play Dracula? Who is Renfield in in Renfield? Uh, Nicholas Holt. And the rest of the cast is Aquafina and Ben Schwartz. And Ben Schwartz especially seems like a would be a, a fun foil to see play opposite Cage in some scenes. Oh, that is a fascinating cast and, and premise for a movie. Just the idea of centering a movie around Renfield, who's always, you know, the guy sort of slavering in the corner, <laughs> not, a, not getting the spotlight. So when Renfield comes out, will you come back on and spoil that one with me, Keith? Oh, I'll come back and spoil anything you want me to. It's been a total pleasure talking to you, Keith. You are the author of Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career. I hope if people were intrigued by our Cage conversation that they will dig deep into the Cageiverse by checking out your book. So thank you again so much for coming on to talk about The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent with me. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
That does it for this Slate Spoiler Special. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed in whatever podcast app you're using. And if you like our show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have ideas for movies or TV shows you would like us to spoil or other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Jasmine Ellis. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Podcasts at Slate. For Keith Phipps, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again very soon.